This is the Bristol Cable. So now, more than ever, we need reporters and commentators who can engage with the sources of discontent and alienation which fuel the assault on our democratic space. But instead, we have a commentaria, overwhelmingly from the same social class, both as each other and the politicians that they cover. And their reference points are limited. Their comfort zone is narrow. Much as they may mock millennials for seeking safe spaces, this is entirely where they operate. This is a live recording of our speaker series, where we speak to prominent writers, academics and activists from across the UK, putting the cable's work in the national conversation. I'm GGL Halabi, the events and community organiser for the Bristol Cable. And in this event, we hear from prolific author, broadcaster, journalist and academic Gary Young for a lecture titled, I Dance Here on Other People's Dreams, What Racism Can Tell Us About Journalism and Power followed by a Q&A hosted by myself. Enjoy the episode. Thank you. It's lovely to be back here, and it's lovely to be back here with Bristol Cable, an initiative that I think is brilliant and is worthy of all our support. I'm going to talk tonight about how I got into journalism and the way that my experiences have shaped my journalism. And I want to start with a scene from my childhood. My mum used to put on the song Young, Gifted and Black by Bob and Marcia, put my feet on hers and then dance us both around the living room. And she'd say, they're playing our song. It was the early 70s. She was barely 30 and I was the youngest of three children that she was raising alone. Struggling to believe there was a viable future for her children in a country where racism was on the rise and the economy was in the tank. She'd seriously considered returning to Barbados, but after a six-week family trip, she decided we'd struggle to keep up academically at school in England. Although I think it's actually because Barbados was so small, she knew that she would have fallen out with everybody uh, in no time at all. Um... So we couldn't go backwards, so we had to go forward. So we danced around the living room, singing ourselves up, imagining a world in which we would thrive, for which we had no evidence but great expectations. In my interview for a Guardian bursary to study a postgraduate course in journalism, I was asked what kind of job I would aspire to if I ever got to work at the paper. A columnist. I said, like Hugo Young, who was the premier columnist at the time. Well, there's only room for a handful of columnists on a newspaper, I was told. Okay, but why shouldn't that be me? I was merely articulating the logic that had got me that far, imagining a world in which I might thrive, for which I had no evidence. Why not me? Much of the politics that informed my writing came from my mum partly rooted in her experience. She came to Britain just a month after the Commonwealth Immigrants Act of 1962, branded by the then Labour leader Hugh Gaitskill as a piece of cruel and brutal anti-colour legislation. She had a British passport. She wasn't an immigrant, actually. She was a British subject. 
Barbados didn't become independent until 68. She didn't cross a border. The border crossed her. She came because the then health minister, Enoch Powell, had embarked on a colossal program of NHS restructuring that required more nurses. She was living proof of the immigrants that the British economy needs, but that its political culture is too toxic to embrace. Who knows how many people who are in those boats and waiting to get into Calais, how many of those could be working in care homes, could be working in the NHS, could be working in jobs that we need to be done and can't find people to do. For her, my mum's, sex, race and class were not abstract identities, but the forces that converged to keep her wages low and her life stressful. But my politics is also rooted in what she made of those experiences. She was an anti-colonialist and an anti-racist, an internationalist and a humanist who would never have used any of those words to describe herself. Race conscious as she was, most of her community activism, youth clubs, literacy classes, discos in the church hall, took place in the working class white community. We lived in Stevenage, that was the community. They were her people too. She made me stay up and watch the Holocaust miniseries, which freaked me out, when I was 10, and took me to watch Gandhi, which was way too long, during the holidays when I was 13. Both times she told me, this is your story too. She believed that the world she wanted to create was never gonna to come to her, so she would have to take the fight to it. I saw her confront the local National Front candidate, the police, and her union, to name but a few. She took me on my first rally, Help the Aged, when I was four. My first demonstration, CND, Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, when I was 14. And my first picket, the South African Embassy, at 17. I didn't learn any of the lessons that she taught me with posterity in mind. I never thought at the time that they would be worth writing down or that anyone would be interested particularly in them or me. I don't mean for that to sound tragic in any way. It just wasn't even remotely obvious to me growing up that this is where it would all end up. I remember coming down, I studied in Edinburgh and I came down on the train to do the interview for the Guardian bursary. And the whole way down the train, I was, I was only really worried about one question, which was, what will you do if you don't get this bursary? Because I'd wanted to be many things in that time, um, uh, some of which you'll hear about in a minute. And journalism was a thing I was kind of interested in, but I thought but people who become journalists, they say, I've always wanted to be a journalist. That's all I wanted to do. That's all I've ever wanted to do. I, made newspapers from the age of four or five. And I was really worried about this question and how I would answer it. Uh, uh, and my feeling was, you just have to say, well, you know, I'll die. If I don't get this bursary, I'll die. This is all I've ever wanted to do. And, um, and then I got into the room and I just shut the bed. You know, they said, uh, what will you do if you don't get this bursary? And there was a pause and I said, something else. <laughs> said, you know, I'll still write, I'll still have opinions, um, but, you know, I'll teach abroad or something like that, just thinking, oh, why, what are you doing? Um, 
Orwell, George Orwell wrote that he knew when he grew up that he should be a writer when he was five or six, which is only slightly older than I was when I danced on my mum's feet. But I was in my early 20s before it ever occurred to me. And my ambivalence was shaped less by issues of representation than sustenance. I just never thought writing was a kind of pursuit from which anyone might make a living. My approach to education was far more instrumental. My mum had never been to university and so I had a very vocational idea of what would make a good course. My eldest brother, Patrick, who went on to run the Travel Channel in the United States and now has his own TV production company, studied mining geology. I studied to be a translator and interpreter of French and Russian, pretty much the most practical language degree you could find. If there had been a degree in plumbing, my mum would have favoured that over, say, history of art. You can use that, she'd have said. And it was my efforts at translation that led me to writing. I enjoyed the discipline of thinking seriously about the meaning of words and the manipulation of language. I wasn't, it turns out, very interested in or good at converting what one person said from one language into another, which is translating. But I had lots to say myself. By the time I left university, I'd been in and out of the Trotskyist movement by the age of 16, taught in a refugee school in Sudan, age 17, studied in Paris and what was then Leningrad, become a student union officer, ran a rent strike, set up an anti-apartheid society and more. I felt I could put this linguistic discipline honed in a dictionary's room in the basement of Harriet Watt University Library to another purpose, journalism. But wherever you go, you take yourself with you. And I entered journalism with a healthy, thorough contempt embedded from my childhood for the dominant narrative. I grew up assuming that the official count of everything was at best suspect, but most likely a downright lie. And I knew this in part uh, because I was being lied about constantly. Who I was, where I was from, why I was here, my intelligence, sexual prowess, propensity to violence, music, sport, and elaborate handshakes were all known to people who did not know me. As the only black family that was also one of the few single parent families in the street with the messiest home and garden, we were everything a tabloid reader might expect from a black migrant family in the 70s, only we were also the politest, best educated kids in the street too. People would either tell us we weren't British, or I bet it's not cold like this where you come from, or tell us we were only British and our race didn't matter. But very few people stopped and asked us how we thought about ourselves. And who could blame them, really? Given everything that was in the papers and on the news, who wouldn't be confused? My mother had come over with a British passport and A-levels in English literature and European history. In the words of Ambalavana Sivanandan, we are here because you were there. But then, of course, how would you make sense of these swarthy strangers if you never knew where you were? It's one of those peculiarities of what they're calling the culture wars that the very people who claim to be the defenders of British history are the very ones who make a fuss when we try to engage it in its entirety. The result is a nation with a very partial knowledge and a very selective collective memory. People say, we won the war. 
even if they didn't fight, and even if they weren't born. And they say, we won the World Cup, even if they didn't play, and even if they weren't born. But when you ask them about colonialism or slavery, they say, well, that wasn't me. I wasn't there. I wasn't born. Orwell wrote, in England, you're England in 1941. It's quite true that the English are hypocritical about their empire. In the working class, this hypocrisy takes the form of not knowing that the empire exists. A decade after that essay was published, the UK government social survey revealed that nearly three-fifths of respondents couldn't name a single British colony. This is when Britain ran much of Africa and much of the Caribbean. Power has many parents, but the brutality it takes to acquire it is generally an orphan. So if your understanding of the past is so distorted, then of course the present will throw you. And I grew up in the mostly white town of Stevenage in the 70s. I was surrounded by people who were very disoriented, and in many ways our presence provided a focal point for that disorientation. In Fear of Small Numbers, Arjun Apadurai writes, minorities are the flashpoint for a series of uncertainties that mediate between everyday life and a fast-shifting global backdrop. This uncertainty exacerbated by an inability of states to secure economic sovereignty in an era of globalization, can translate, he writes, into a lack of tolerance of any sort of collective stranger. Even among those who knew us, we would at times find ourselves cast as that collective stranger, understood not as people, but as politically curated archetypes. There was a man up the road who refused to get off the telephone a party line we shared with our neighbours, when my mum wanted to call the ambulance because my brother had lost half his finger in the door, preferring instead to shout racial obscenities. The teachers' union officials who refused to support my mum when she demanded that her school replace the desk that had racial insults carved into it. The family two doors up who smeared shit on our door and shouted abuse. None of these moments were particularly defining. The stream of indignities and iniquities racism threw my way was something to be navigated if I didn't want to drown in it. But in the process of charting my course through them, I learned what to look out for. I learned not so much to lower expectations, but to suspend them, to see how affect aligned with action. So I developed a gimlet-eyed view of the world. And while that view was nurtured in my own self-interest, it lent itself to a certain kind of journalism that would be both critical and defiant. There was nothing inevitable about this. Very few people who grew up in similar circumstances went into the media, and many who did didn't hold the same views. It's also true that people from very different backgrounds developed similar faculties. But it follows that when you think people are lying about you, then you might think they're also lying about others. And so my understanding of how the media framed events aligned with my understanding of how they framed us. At home, we identified with Bobby Sands, Robert Mugabe, and people on strike. On some level, we developed what therapists now term oppositional defiance disorder. We supported the West Indies in cricket, Wales in rugby, and Brazil at football, but never England at anything. When it came to the pitch battles, between black youth and the police in the early 80s, 
we knew enough about the police to know that they weren't blameless. These allegiances found little confirmation outside my childhood home, and so a kind of double consciousness emerged in which one assumed an alternative set of values were at large, which did not have our interests at heart. This assumption itself was never actually stated. Indeed, I was barely conscious of it at the time. These lies, and I'm not sure I would call them that now, but then that was what they felt like, had no definite subject. I never thought this was a conspiracy. It was all too messy, reflexive and visceral for any personal entity to coordinate. In many ways, it felt far more sinister. The lies were so deftly woven into the culture that you could barely see the stitching. I grew up assuming I was being lied to in the same way that others grow up assuming they are being told the truth. That's why I don't believe in objectivity. When we examine a moment, a person, a scene or an event, we all stand somewhere. And that place constitutes a vantage point. It's different for everybody. The outlooks of other journalists are no less informed by their experiences. The principal difference is that I'm more aware of where I'm coming from than most because I've had to be. The less powerful an identity is, the more likely those who have it are to be aware of it. Nobody asks me, when did you come out as a straight man? Because straight people don't get asked that question. Nobody ever asks me, how do you balance being a father with being a foreign correspondent? Because men don't get asked that question. When my previous book, Another Day in the Death of America, was translated into Dutch, I went to Flanders and the Netherlands to promote it. And twice in one day, I was asked, do you think you would have written this book if you hadn't been black? The first time I was thrown and I replied, well, I really can't say because I've never been anything else. But the second time, I batted the question back. Would you ever ask a white reporter whether they wrote something because they were white? I said. While writing against the Iraq war, an American wrote to me, mistaking his reference points for mine, insisting that if it hadn't been for him, I'd be speaking German. Actually, I replied, if it wasn't for you, I'd probably be speaking Yoruba. Whether it's in our successes or our failures, those of us who are less well represented have little option but to be self-aware of who we are and how we are framed. The concentration of private school-educated Oxbridge graduates in the profession, journalism profession, makes self-awareness a rare commodity. According to the 2019 Sutton Trust and Social Mobility Report, more columnists come from elite backgrounds than senior judges and lords. Lords. When the media class is drawn from the same social strata as the political class, the spectrum of views is narrow and the atmosphere in which they are aired fetid. In newsrooms and media companies, this point, if heard at all, is usually filed under diversity and passed on to HR. That is one place for it. But it could and should just as easily and rightly be filed under journalism and passed on to editorial because the kind of journalist you have shapes the kind of news you get. I've got a cold. I'm not just snacking on candy. <laughs> Take police shootings in America. 
there hasn't been an increase in the number of black people being killed by the police in the US over the last decade or so um, when Black Lives Matter became a national rallying cry. The shootings were not news in the conventional sense. They were neither rare nor to the communities involved particularly surprising. They became news simply because those who make the news, journalists, could no longer ignore them. The world didn't change. What changed was the journalist's ability to pass off the grotesque as unremarkable. I recall a journalism school being taught various adages about what constitutes news. News is what someone doesn't want you to print. All the rest is advertising. Or one person's news is another person's troubles. Or news is something somebody wants suppressed. And among them was the saying, when a dog bites a man, apparently there were no women at this time, that is not news. But when a man bites a dog, that is news. And that last one kept coming back to me throughout my career. I mean, you get it, right? That, well, dogs, they're supposed to bite people. So when a dog bites someone, you know, that's just the world turning as it should be. But when a person bites a dog, well, that's, that's different. Um, I began to wonder if there wasn't an addendum to, to that saying, a qualifying footnote to what seems like the obvious. Because sometimes events derive their potential news value precisely because they happen so often. That there are things that happen with such regularity and predictability that journalists have simply ceased to recognize their news value, not least if those things are least likely to happen to the people most likely to be journalists. That much of what we have come to accept as commonplace has dulled our curiosity to why so much of what is commonplace is unacceptable. That given the prevailing and escalating inequalities and inequities, journalists simply do not occupy the same world that they portend to cover, even when those worlds are right on their doorstep. And so there is value at times in asking, why do these dogs keep biting people? Who owns these dogs? And why do the same people keep getting bitten? This became painfully clear when reporting Another Day in the Death of America, which is about all of the children and teens who were shot dead on a random day in America. I picked a day, and then all of the kids, there were, at the time there were seven children and teens every day were shot dead. Now it's 12, it's much worse. Um, but there were seven at the time, and I picked a day at random. It was a weekend, because more die on the weekend. And it's a reliable statistic. You pick the day and they will die. So I picked the day, and then I spent two years finding out who they were. One of the boys was Samuel Brightman, a 16-year-old killed in South Dallas while walking down the street with his friend under the not very inventive headline, Teen Fatally Shot While Walking Down the Street. The Dallas Morning News wrote a single paragraph. Now, they didn't have a lot to go on, but in the days to come, there was no profile of Samuel, no testimony from his school friends or teachers, no sense of who he was, let alone why he was killed. A young man was removed from the planet and just got a paragraph. How can that be? Well, I spoke to the reporter who'd written the paragraph, and to be fair, it was her task to record it, not to follow it up. So when the day was done, she hands the stories over to the regular crime team and they would take up the weekend stories that they thought were worth 
running with, and his story didn't make the cut. And that didn't surprise her. Indeed, it would surprise very few. Pleasant Grove, which is the area where Samuel was shot dead, is poor and black and on the south side of Dallas. It's mockingly referred to as Unpleasant Grove. Shootings were common there, she confirmed. People are desensitized to it. They reason that's just where bad things happen. And I heard this refrain often when talking to the journalists who covered that day's shootings. Clearly, I was the only one who had called them to follow up on the story. And they would kindly rifle through their notes and tell me what they knew and if they'd been to the crime scene, what they'd seen. And invariably, when I asked if they had any contact details for family members I could speak to or if there'd been any developments in the investigation, they would explain somewhat matter-of-factly why they'd moved on. Unfortunately, homicides are not uncommon in that area, said one. Unless something unexpected happened, it just wouldn't be the kind of story we'd follow up on, said another. Now, there is a level of detachment inherent and arguably necessary in the profession. Without it, you would become emotionally depleted. And moreover, one is constantly gauging what more there is to say and who would be listening if you said it. Outlets have limited resources. Editors have to justify budgets for keeping you in a certain place or sending you back to trace each individual story, which in turn must be balanced against what other news stories you might be missing. Journalism isn't social work. And even social workers, to be effective, must move on. So I do understand how this happened, but I also understand that these are little more than rationalizations for how we exercise our relative power, that journalists choose whose stories are told, whom they go back to, and where their resources are deployed. And those choices aren't objective. They are made on the basis of what stories we subjectively consider are worthy of being told at any given time. The fact that most media outlets are commercial enterprises is, of course, a factor. The more a story costs and the less likely it is to bring in readers and therefore revenue, the less likely institutions are to invest resources in it. But it's not the only factor and generally not the most important. To no small extent, what the media does is replicate and transmit the inequalities that exist elsewhere. I felt this with the Windrush scandal, that The Guardian broke the Windrush scandal. And for about six to eight months, the fact that people who lived in Britain for 60, 70 years had children and grandchildren, had worked sometimes in the House of Commons and worked in schools who'd made their life here, sometimes came over when they were three or four. The idea that they were being deported was like dog bites person to many news outlets. What they saw was an old Caribbean person with an immigration problem. They didn't see a British person. They didn't see a human being. They didn't see another story. So the Guardian kept breaking the same story over and over again, and nobody followed it up until the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. It was, uh, it was quite incredible. The less likely journalists are to live in the areas where gun deaths happen or to know the kind of people whom they happen to, the less that they are to consider those issues as news. Journalistically, this remoteness comes at a severe price because they literally don't know the people they are writing about. 
Now, what I'm not saying here, and I couldn't emphasize this enough, is that the rich are not capable of covering the poor or white journalists cannot understand the challenges black people face. That way, madness lies. Journalism, when done well, is about more than just amplifying the worldview with which one is best acquainted. It requires research, reporting, empathy, and analysis. Take the Windrush scandal again. That story was broken in the mainstream press by a white journalist who was educated at St. Paul's Private School, one of the fanciest, and Wadham College, Oxford, and is married to Lord Johnson of Marlebone, the brother of former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The point is not that it is impossible to travel these social distances to get that story and tell it, it's that the further people have to travel, the less likely they are to complete the journey. I simply cannot help thinking that if there had been more journalists in the mainstream newsrooms with relatives who knew or were related to elderly Caribbean people, it wouldn't have taken so long for anyone else to follow up that story. And so it generally takes a seismic event like Grenfell or Katrina or the murder of George Floyd for the media to take an interest in the underlying structural issues that shape the lives of so many, at which point they discover these daily realities in much the same way that teenagers discover sex. Urgently, earnestly, voraciously and carelessly, with great self-indulgence, but precious little self-awareness. They've always known about it, but somehow when confronted with it, it nonetheless takes them by surprise. And then their surprise becomes the issue. In the wake of the uprisings in Ferguson, Missouri, following the shooting of Michael Brown, the US Department of Justice produced a report into how the city was being run. I believe any enterprising journalist could have produced themselves if they'd not been inured to this kind of systemic discrimination. Among the findings was the story of a 14-year-old boy found in an abandoned building who was chased down by a dog which bit his ankle and his left arm as he protected his face. The boy says the officers kicked him in the head and then laughed about it afterwards. The officers say they thought he was armed. He wasn't. The Department of Justice investigators found that every time a police dog bit someone in the city of Ferguson, the victim was black. And that suggests that sometimes dog bites man actually really is the story. And the trouble is that journalists keep missing it. So these oligarchic tendencies within journalism are a problem, not least for journalism itself. They're not a new problem, but in a period of intensifying political polarization and economic inequality, they do present a pressing problem. We live during a moment of profound despair and cynicism in which people are not just operating through different ideologies, but on the basis of different facts. So now, more than ever, we need reporters and commentators who can engage with the sources of discontent and alienation which fuel the assaults on our democratic space. But instead, we have a commentaria, overwhelmingly from the same social class, both as each other and the politicians that they cover. And their reference points are limited. Their comfort zone is narrow. Much as they may mock millennials for seeking safe spaces, this is entirely where they operate. Many among the commentaria feel so entitled in their proximity to the establishment that they regard any attack against the establishment as an attack on themselves. 
when they witness an event that they cannot understand, they think the problem is with the event, not with them. When political figures or moments emerge that make them feel uncomfortable or that they don't like, they subject it not to analysis, but parody. Declarative in tone and dismissive in manner, they are more interested in denouncing what is happening than understanding why it is happening. Now that never felt like an option for me. My critical eye could never have been a cynical eye for it would have missed and misread too much. The people I grew up alongside, whom I described earlier, were no more stereotypes than we were. They were not metaphors, they were people. Try as they might, they could not at times mask their humanity and their fragility. They were people who did bad things, but they weren't uniformly bad people. The man who refused to get off the phone when my brother lost his finger in the door was later treated by my mum, then working as a psychiatric nurse after a breakdown. When I was 15, he helped me make a metronome for my GCSE technology project. The kids who shouted abuse, whose parents or them, didn't find out who it was, put shit on our door, would also come round to play on our swing. It was to our door that they ran when their mother went into labour at home. Now, the emotional labour of empathy, as always, falls primarily on those of us with the least power. We had to see things from other people's point of view, even if we didn't like them, because otherwise it was impossible to fathom what was going on and what might come next. In Armistead Mopin's 1992 novel, Maybe the Moon, the protagonist, Cadence Roth, describes exactly this condition as she explains the challenges of being a little person. When you're my size, she says, and not being tormented by elevator buttons and water fountains and ATMs, you spend your life accommodating the sensibilities of normal people. You learn to bury your own feelings and honour theirs in the hope that they'll meet you halfway. It becomes your job, and yours alone, to explain, to ignore, to forgive over and over again. And you do it if you want to have a life and not spend it being corroded by your own anger. You do it if you want to belong to the human race. Things always look different from where Cadence was standing. So to accept that people you violently disagree with have a point of view is not an indulgence. It's the first step in a process that might either develop ideas that can win them over or produce a robust response. But all too often, often journalists summarily write them off. They wrote off those who voted for Brexit. They wrote off those and are writing off those who vote for Trump. They write and wrote off those who supported Jeremy Corbyn, the three most salient recent examples, preferring instead to caricature them. And this leads to political obfuscation when we urgently need clarity and to a lack of confidence in the media when we need more trust. There is always a reason why people do things, however unpalatable. I never felt I had the luxury of refusing to understand people I didn't like. From an early age, it felt like my life depended on it. 
Now, as important as these qualities are, no amount of empathy, analytical ability, parental support, self-image reinforcement, determination, intelligence, bloody-mindedness, hard work, moxie, or chutzpah could have propelled me from my upbringing to this podium. The space where my viewpoints could be shared and the route through which I would come to be able to share them were paved by others whom I didn't know and mostly never met. In the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, Marx writes, men make their own history. Clearly he hadn't heard of women either. But they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The story that I have told you about my upbringing is only partially complete in that it came with a cast of supporting characters without whom my story could not make sense. For I am also the child of free school meals, student grants, sixth form stipends and the NHS. I had a hernia when I was eight. My mother was a nocturnal epileptic. Without the support, I doubt I'd be here now. The Guardian awarded me a bursary to study journalism. Mine was, I think, the second year. It had emerged in the early 90s and was a response to the uprisings among black youth in the 80s. Black people were always in the news, but rarely in the newsrooms. And so the Scott Trust, which owns The Guardian, wanted to offer a correction and give bursaries to underrepresented groups in journalism. Without it, I would have chosen another profession. In 1999, the McPherson report into the racist murder of Stephen Lawrence made the concept of institutional racism mainstream. That was the year my first column appeared. Yasmin Alibi Brown's column appeared in The Independent. It was the year my first book was published and Steve McQueen won the Turner Prize. The year before, Chris Ophelia won the Turner Prize. The year after, Zadie Smith's White Teeth came out. Now, the relationship between these events was not causal, but contextual. It detracts not one iota from their creative abilities or their hard work that made their success possible. It's only the privileged and the naive who truly believe that people's achievements are purely the product of their own genius. It simply acknowledges that there have been others who were similarly able and hardworking, for whom space had not been cleared. Ingratitude is the accusation launched by racists of black people in the public eye who have the audacity to highlight the racial injustice they see and have experienced. So I would like to take this opportunity to express my gratitude, not to Britain, but to the youth who took to the streets and the bereaved families who took to the courts and in so doing made my career possible. From those days of shuffling around to Bob and Marcia in my living room with my mum, I have been the product of the belief that the world I want to occupy does not exist and so must be made. My mum died suddenly when she was 44 and I was 19. She never read any of my journalism. I think my presence here or in the pages of The Guardian or as a professor would have been as improbable to her as anything else she imagined for me as a child. But it was not her imagination alone that made it happen. There were those who never knew me but imagined a world in which someone like me might be possible and fall for a world they could not see. I was not possible, and yet here I am. But I didn't get here alone. I danced here 
on other people's dreams. Thank you. This speaker series is part of the Cable's new Beyond the Bullshit campaign, our biggest membership drive yet. It's so clear that people are tired of corporate news that thrives on profit, sensationalism, has no integrity. We need members to keep proper journalism alive and show that people-powered media can work. So sign up to be a member today for as little as a pound a month at thebristolcable.org forward slash join. Hello, everyone, and we're back. Hello, Gary, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. So we'll get straight into it. This one's from Molly Rose Crossley. As a master's student studying journalism, we are constantly told that the profession is one of the least trusted, and this goes hand in hand when trying to find willing contributors. Do you think there is a way we can rebuild the trust in journalists? Um, <clears throat> I, I, I do. I think that... Um, uh, the crudest way would be to say that, well, journalists should do their job. And if they did their job, I think people would, uh, uh, would trust them more. I think people, the, the economies of local newspapers were hard to sustain, which is why something like Bristol Cable is so important. But people were much more likely to trust their local newspaper than they would um, uh, national newspapers. And there is much more trust, for example, in a paper like the Financial Times, which um, people think, well, I, you know, I don't agree with it, but I think it is going to is going to be a faithful reflection of of what happened or what might happen. Uh, and so, I think the problem is that newspapers have become, arguably, they always were, but in a kind of caffeinated situation with social media, they have become not vessels for telling you what, what happened, but actually vessels for a particular point of view in every single possible, uh, in, in every single possible way, which actually skews the things that they're telling you. You know, that I would, I would have appreciated a more thorough investigation into what made certain people vote for Donald Trump as opposed to, ha-ha, look at them, aren't they stupid? Um, same with Brexit. What does this mean? As opposed to, I'm just going to point out the contradictions here. They work in this factory. It was subsidised by uh, the EU, and they're voting against the EU. And kind of that's it. It's like, OK, so why are they doing it? And um, I think that is about that, that element of social class and oligarchy that is that are always looking kind of social class-wise, always looking down on people, that journalism has become too much like anthropology. Do you know what I mean? I am now going to go and speak to the great unwashed and find out what they think. It's always them. Because it's, they're never like the people who are the journalists. So th that's, you know, that's kind of primarily what I, think, what I think the problem is. And I think it becomes more acute when you're in a polarised moment or a moment of economic distress. And we've been in a period of economic distress for over a decade. 
we've been in an extremely polarised moment for the best part of 10 years, I'd say. Thank you. Um, so the next question is from Dylan. How much of a part do you feel social media has played in bringing stories such as George Floyd's death and the Black Lives Matter movement to the front pages? Oh, I think if it wasn't for social media, then we would never have heard of George Floyd. They put out a press release saying, oh, there was, um, you know, a thing happened at a shop and um, the guy resisted and unfortunately he died and that was it. You know, that was the Minneapolis police report. And you needed to see it. I'm not entirely sure why that particular death, because there are so many, and many of them are filmed, why that particular death went viral. But you needed to see it to be able to amplify it. Exactly the same thing with uh, Michael Brown, and I think the same thing with Trevor Martin, that we're in a moment technological moment where it's not so much that anybody can be a journalist, I don't think that exactly, but anybody can amplify what they see and anyone can record what they see. And that takes the exclusivity out of the hands of the gatekeepers. So I think it's been absolutely fundamental. I think in a different way, it's been fund it was fundamental in Me Too movement. It was a mainstream media that did the Harvey Weinstein story, but it was social media that made Me Too what it was and that said, well, this is not just happening in Hollywood and it created a kind of uh, uh, a moment. So I think it's, it's fundamental. It's also problematic, but, um, uh, but it's important. Thank you. So next question. Um, I have not watched The Wire, but have you watched The Wire? And if so, how realistic did you think the portrayal of the newspaper in the final season was? Thanks, Matt. Uh, I have watched The Wire, and for those of you who haven't, the things that I think are uh, realistic are there's a, there's a journalist in it who basically makes stuff up and becomes kind of fated because his bosses want to believe the things that he's saying, and so they kind of publish them. Now... I genuinely didn't experience anybody just straight up making stuff up. But I did experience quite often uh, editors in particular sections who wanted something to be true. It, was, it used to drive me crazy. That they, would some, they would send you somewhere for the story that they assumed was true. In which case, why send someone to do the story? If you know what the outcome is, if you know already, then what? So in America, they would say, right, go to Ohio and do jobs and values. That Ohio is a place where people worry about jobs, but there are also lots of people who are deeply Christian. The whole bloody state could have gone down with gonorrhea. It wouldn't matter because you're doing jobs and values. That's what we send you there to do. And so the, the, that thing of, um, of discovery doesn't really exist. They get the stories that they go to get. Um, and they're really surprised. We're about to, we're going to have an election year. Unless they decide that turnout is an issue, you won't meet any non-voters in the papers. They never run across people who are like, I don't give a shit. They never meet them. They never, they have a thesis and they will meet 
the people who support the thesis, the people who don't support the thesis, and some people who are on the fence. They never meet, when they do election stories in America, they never meet people who are like, I can't vote because I was in prison. <clears throat> or I don't have ID. Or, so uh, there's one of the journalists who, he gets the story that they want to get. And he becomes Lord, even though they are fabricated. And issues are raised about his journalism, but it's just too good to pass up. And then there's another journalist who spends quite a long time on a really good story about a drug-addicted man who is getting well and finally emerging from his sister's basement, where she said, you can stay in my basement, but you can't come in my house, because last time he came to my house, she stole my TV and so on and so forth. But I will, and he comes out of her basement. And this story takes a long time. And it is not necessarily the story that's going to win a Pulitzer. But it tells you something that you didn't know. It introduces you to someone who you may never know. It humanizes a person who would be dehumanized otherwise. It's a great story. And it does go on the front page, I think. In the, but it's the kind of... Um, those stories are kind of chronically unloved in, uh, uh, in journalism, even though they're incredibly important. Thank you. Um, we've had a few questions um, around Palestine, so I'm gonna ask these two together. Um, so does your analysis of the media's shared social background with the powerful and rich explain the biased reporting of the experience of Palestinians? And if you were writing for a paper now, what would you be wanting to highlight in the war against Hamas and Gaza? Um, so the truth is, it's not their social position because this is an international story. So it's not about being kind of upper class or not upper class or, or whatever. I don't think it's that. And I've been to Palestine once for the Palestine Literary Festival. Uh, so it's not that I don't know anything about it, but I don't, I don't want to mouth off about it. But I, w I will say this, and it applies to the reporting of Palestine and Israel and a lot of other things that I was talking about, that come a certain point in journalism, and I really noticed this with Corbyn, they don't have to tell you what to write. There doesn't have to be literal censorship because you censor yourself, because you have a sense of what is going to be possible, what is not going to be possible, what is going to be, um, um, what is, is beyond the bounds. And, and I say this because this was my experience with Corbyn, being one of the few full-time columnists who had a, I had a critique of Labour under Corbyn, but I broadly supported the left shift of Labour. That was the truth of it. And I phrase it like that because it came in the shape of Corbyn, but it wasn't Corbyn I was supporting particularly. Uh, uh, but he was there, so I'm not going to deny that under his leadership, I supported Labour, and I was kind of, and I stood by that, and it was, it felt as I was doing it, and uh, you know, this comes back to my point about like, well, what will you do if you're not a journalist? Well, I'll do something else. I just thought, because it, it, it came to a point where it felt like it was career damaging, and I thought, well, then fuck the career, basically. Like, the career, if the career demands you kind of not saying things that you either know or true or believe to be true, then, then it doesn't matter. But that it was, it counted you out of respected company. 
there was an understanding that this was beyond the pale. Nobody had to tell you, don't support him. You only had to look at what happened to most of the people who did support him to see what was going to come your way in terms of accusations of anti-Semitism or this or that or the other. And I think a similar thing takes place with uh, uh, Gaza and Israel and a range of other things, is that people, they are more likely to colour in the within the lines. And the lines in, on certain subjects become narrower and narrower. And to stand outside those lines demands either a level of indifference, which was my feeling. Well, you know, what are you going to do? What, you know. So, yeah, I support Labour under Corbyn, so what's next? Well, are you going to behead me? What, what is the worst thing that can happen here? Um or bravery, or courage, or stupidity, or all of those things that make people just say, well, no, I just don't, that's, those lines don't, don't work for me. Uh, but this was true with Ireland, with the north of Ireland, that you couldn't write in favour of Sinn Féin. You could never say, well, the IRA's violence is a response to the violence of the occupation. But you can say any of those things, or not in the mainstream media anyway, or if you did, then there would be a price to pay. And so people didn't. And so you get this kind of permanent evolution of the common sense. Um, and I think that sometimes it's actually quite important for people to say, well, that common sense doesn't make any sense. Um, there, was a, there was a version of it, a version, it wasn't quite as tight with the Iraq war as well in 2003, but it wasn't quite as tight as it was under Corbyn or, um, or with Israel and Palestine. Thank you, and here's a question about Labour. It seems that large portions of the Labour Party are no longer willing to make moral arguments for humane treatment towards desperate people crossing the channel. Possibly they fear a journalistic backlash. Do you think this would improve if a Labour government came to power? Is this just wishful thinking? Or should we be looking to activist community groups? Well, first of all, I think you always look to activists and community groups. They're the people that make a difference. I have no faith in the current Labour leadership, but I think it's the Labour leadership. I don't think it's the Labour members who don't have a humanity. It's pathetic to see with the Rwanda thing, the Labour leadership kind of say, well, to make a managerial argument. Not that it's immoral, but just it's just not going to work. And it's like, yeah. So if it did work, would that be okay? Like, there is a really clear argument that you can make, particularly now, particularly as I alluded to, when people can't get social care, when people can't get uh, seen in uh, hospitals. We have a labour shortage. And we have people saying, well, they're economic migrants. It's like, well, we bloody need economic migrants, actually. So... You know, what we don't need is for them to be coming in such a dangerous way. Why don't you have a more sensible way of organising e economic migration? Instead, they pride themselves on uh, raising the, the amount of money you have to have to kind of bring someone over or stopping people working in care homes from bringing their kids and thinking that somehow that's going to solve our problems. It's absolute lunacy. My reading of it is that it's actually the Labour leadership. I don't think it's necessarily... I'm not a member of the Labour Party, but I don't think it's necessarily the membership. And 
while I have no faith in this Labour leadership, we are con- so long as we have first past the post in this country, then we're always, I think, in the quite difficult position of wanting people that we don't like to win because the people who we don't like even more would win otherwise. And so I do think that those activists and community groups will be able to apply more pressure when there's a Labour government than when there's a Tory government, which is why for all of the ways in which the Labour leadership are utterly craven and disappointing, I want them to win because there's only one other party that can win and we know what they're like. Thank you. So next, um, can you unpack the awful culture war spin of British homes for British people? Do you think this is an opportunistic political cynicism or reflects opinions held in the general population in this spirit as you advocated of trying to understand views you do not agree with? Um, I think it has the potential to be one of those rallying cries that actually has no basis in reality. I think about 81% of social housing in Britain goes to white British people. That is roughly the proportion of white British people in the country because there's um, about, I don't know, 13, 14% non-white and then there's a significant number of white people who aren't British. So white people are getting their share of the social housing and this is clearly a provocation along with, I think, whatever side you're on of this issue, the trans stuff, which I just kind of, I just don't know. I wonder, are people going to vote on the basis of that, of toilets? Who can, you, I, you know, I find, it, I, I find it unlikely. But it's, these framings are created not to solve the issue of housing, uh, but to rally people around a certain set of fears, which is how comes you get people rushing to defend statues they never noticed before. Um, I'm sure that there are lots of people who agree with that. And a good journalist would, would say to them, who do you think's getting the social housing? Why do you think they are getting that social housing? Me, if I told you that 81% of the social housing goes to white British people, would that surprise you? You know, that you're trying to get to the bottom of if that works, and if it does work, then why does it work? What each is it scratching? Because, you know, is, is the person... I remember talking to a woman in America who was really campaigning hard against migrants. And she talked to me about it for a long time. I said, um, OK, so I, I kind of get... I, I, I understand where you're coming from, and you think they're taking all the jobs and all of that kind of stuff. I'm just wondering, like, do you have health care? And she said, no. And I said, would you like health care? And she said, oh, yeah. And it's all my back. And, and I said, OK, so I'm genuinely interested. There's no wrong answer for my story here. But which is more important to you? You getting health care or them being kicked out of the country? Which one... And it started a kind of um, a useful conversation to kind of get to the bottom of what 
she was thinking, that my job as a journalist isn't to argue with people and prove them wrong, unless it's a political leader or when it's on telly, it's a bit different because you have to challenge things that people say in real time. But in print, the idea isn't to hector people, it's to find out well, what, what is the appeal of this thing. So good journalism can get to the bottom of, is this a thing? Or is this just a thing that politicians are saying in the hope that it becomes a thing? And if it is, what does this thing actually mean? And both of those, the first one is very important. Because otherwise, what journalists end up doing is just going and accepting the frame of the politicians, mm -hmm. which is a terrible indictment of what that job should be. Thank you. Um, just, just um, there, there is quite a funny story once of being in South Africa reporting and I got a very insistent call from London because um, there was a claim that the Gauteng province, which runs kind of Joburg and, uh, uh, and beyond, had banned white authors. It was bollocks. They hadn't done anything of the sort. But what they had done is change the curriculum and lo and behold there had been very few black people on the curriculum so there were more black people on the curriculum and therefore there's only so much room on the curriculum some of the white ones have to come off but there were white people on the curriculum but it became them banning white people and they were saying can you ask people in the townships about this and, and i was like oh, I can't do it. and i ignored them for the first kind of day and a half and then they and the first person i went to i i felt embarrassed but i I said, you know, what do you think of this? And the guy was like, of what? And it was like, it wasn't a story. It had gone halfway around the bloody world, but it hadn't reached the townships. And, um, and so I explained the story, which is always a problem. If you have to explain the story and then say, what's your opinion about the thing that you didn't even know about until I told you, then that tells you something. So I, 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 and then the person just said, do you see any bookshops around here? Do you know what I mean? This is a township. Nobody is talking about that. And I was like, great, thank you. That is a great quote. <laughs> thank you. So we have time for a couple more, actually. There's been so many. I'm so sorry we're not going to be able to get through all of them. Um, as one of the few non-white people in the audience, I wonder what you think about me, us using that term, non-white. You know, I don't mind. I think that um, I'm old. Right, I'm 55, so in my time, when I was coming through, the notion was of uh, that there was a phrase, politically black, that blackness isn't actually literally the colour of your skin, it's a political colour, and that that would include anybody who wasn't white. And it's a political colour, it's not an ethnic colour, it's not a religious colour, it doesn't mean that people don't have separate religions, ethnicities, if you come from Ghana, that's very different than if you come from Guyana, for example, or, you know, Barbados and Benin, they're different places. But that uh, you come here and you share an experience. And that that experience, there are similarities, whether you're Bangladeshi, Pakistani, Caribbean. Now that's kind of attachment to that term kind of fell apart sometime in the last kind of 15 years. And one can mourn it or not mourn it. But what's been interesting is that every other attempt 
has been to find another word for exactly the same thing. So BAME means what used to be called black. Non-white is what we used to call black because we know what we mean when we say it, which is that you're the only one in the room or you're one of few in the room or that you, there are things that I share experiences with people of my age who are Bengali. It's not the same. I didn't grow up in a religious household. Bengalis might have done. It'd be different kind of places that we lived, different attitudes to a range of things. But our positionality within the British polity and British society, it was analogous. And so I get less hung up on what people call it as opposed to what it means. And I think that what we've done over the past 15 or 20 years is found lots of different ways to really say the same thing. And the, the challenge and the, re, the, the challenge in this is that there is a way of talking about this which I think is nonsensical. And it's to reduce everything to yourself. That to think of these categories as personal categories as opposed to social and political categories. To say, well, that doesn't really describe me because my dad's from here and my mum's from there. And it's like, yeah, but it's not about you. Because otherwise you have this neoliberalization of identity where each person has their own bespoke identity. Well, you can't organize around that. And I'm only really interested in, in race as a concept and a construct to the degree to which it is I am able to organize around it politically, right? There is no such thing as race, but there is something called racism. And that's what I want to get rid of. And so in order to that, in order to get rid of that, unfortunately we have to work um, on, uh, within some racial categories, but it's important not to fetishize them because otherwise we actually become the thing that um, has been created for us. It's not real. Racism is real, but race isn't. Thank you. We've come to time, but there's one more question I want to ask. And um, yes, unfortunately, there's quite a few we won't get to. But thank you, Gary, for sharing. Your story tells us something important about systemic racism deep within the fabric of life and the weaving of resilience into those who bore the pain of this. There are so many stories missing and untold. Some about the lives of the Irish who lived and worked in Bristol and made up about 10% of the population back even in the 1400s. The total unacknowledgement of their contribution and cruelty in the way they were treated for many centuries is still hidden. How best to go forward with revealing that story? I'm shy. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is something quite close to my heart because I have a brother who lives in Ireland. Uh, I have Irish nieces and nephews. I was just in Ireland this last weekend. And actually, interestingly, there was a discussion a while back about the degree to which one might, the degree to which one might talk about the Irish as being black. And it went, well, if black, if race is not a color, but an experience, and that experience is a shared experience of colonialism and uh, of discrimination here, then why aren't the Irish black? To which the answer is, well, they're just not, you know. Um, uh, same way that Jews aren't black, they are different kind of white people, apart from the black ones, because um, like my nieces and nephews. Um, and uh, for those of you 
who know the book by Noel Ignatieff called How the Irish Reinvented Themselves as White, which is about the Irish as a colonized people going to America and realizing, oh, if we think of ourselves not so much as Catholic, but as white people, then there is a whole new wonderful world for us. Um, and so the Irish, my wife is from uh, Chicago, and I talked to her about the affinity that there was between black and Irish people in Britain. And she said, yeah, we, in, in Chicago, they have the reputation for being the most racist. And, uh, you know, being in the police force, the fire department, of excluding black people and so on and so forth. And um, the challenge is to keep on telling those stories, is to understand that discrimination, it can be on the basis of color, but it needn't be. And that, you know, the British state, where we are as a country, the people who build this place, uh, many of the people who staffed the NHS were Irish. And that that story can be lost in whiteness. And so, and it actually comes back in a way to the point I was making before about decoupling race and racism so that you can talk meaningfully about white people who are also uh, have a history of discrimination and also have a, a shared history uh, of resistance. This weekend, just this weekend gone, in the family gathering that we had, I was uh, given, both of my brothers were given by our nieces and nephews these T-shirts that said, more blacks, more dogs, more Irish. <laughs> and, and what's interesting about that is that my nieces and nephews, they understood it was funny. They didn't exactly know how or why. And it speaks to a very particular moment in British history. If I wore that T-shirt in America, they'd be like, what? Dogs? Do you know what I mean? What, what does that even mean? But it speaks to a particular moment in which there was a notion of shared experience of, it's why I mentioned Bobby Sands in, in the talk. And there's a real risk of losing that. And there's a reason why it's so important at the moment questions about Gaza, to talk about journalists in Gaza. And it's not because they're more important than anybody else, because they're not. But because the journalists and the poets and the artists, they're the storytellers. And that telling these stories is actually very, very important. The telling these stories is how we know that there are many children in Palestine who say that where they come from is a town that doesn't exist anymore. That's stories that have been told. It's the stories that we know that Jews and Arabs lived in that area for centuries in relative peace. We know that because of stories. And they can kill, and this is a place to end, they can, they can kill the storytellers, but they can't kill the stories. You can cut down the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. Thank you. Very pointed way to end, Sandy Derry. This was an episode of Cable Live. 
head to thebristolcable.org forward slash calendar to check our upcoming events across Bristol and subscribe to our podcast for weekly episodes from live event recordings to investigative documentaries. Thanks for listening. Thank you.